Welcome to Faith at Work. I'm Carl Grant, and today's podcast will feature the 2002 High Tech Prayer Breakfast in the D.C. metro area where Gary Dacient was a speaker. Thank you very much. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and to speak to you about something that is the most important thing to me in my life. Uh, I had the opportunity over a number of years to speak at a number of technology conferences uh, in Cisco, where I guided the sales force for a number of years. I've given a number of sales presentations. I am a salesperson. I am a marketing person. Uh, and so you'll probably see that reflected. But what I want you to consider today is the most important topic, the most important decision that you could ever make in your life. There's a certain uncomfortableness, and you can see it in all the speakers this morning, and as we prepared and even prayed about this, that we invite people here who aren't Christians, and that's primarily who I'm speaking to. Maybe you're an agnostic, maybe you're an atheist, but I'm speaking to you. And we say, well, you're coming to breakfast. There's a certain uncomfortableness about when somebody gets in your face and talks about God. I was at a dinner, hosted at our house, three couples, purposely to introduce this topic to a dear friend of mine of 20 years, he and his wife. And we were sitting around the dinner table, and one of the other couples, who was a Christian, the wife gave her testimony and looked at my dear friend and said, do you believe there's a God? And he said, well, yeah, I believe there's a God with a certain amount of uncomfortableness. Yeah, I believe there is a God, and uh, I believe he's a good God, like you said. Well, second question then, do you believe there's a heaven? Yeah, yeah, I do believe there's a heaven, just like I believe there's a good God. Well, then let me ask you the third, what's going to happen to you when you die? Well, I believe this good God is going to look at the things I've done in my life and is going to say, hey, on the balance, it's pretty decent, so come on in. Now, I was stuck because I'd known this gentleman, as I said, for nearly 20 years and known his wife. And I knew him to be a very astute business person. As a matter of fact, if I gave you the names of the people at that dinner last night, probably virtually every one of you would recognize both couples. And that's why I don't give the names. Now, had I said, you know what, things are going pretty well at Cisco the ears probably would have picked up because this is a few years ago. And I said, you know, as a matter of fact, what I'm thinking, revenue is going to increase 12% next quarter. I think over the next year, three new products will be introduced and we will capture market share somewhere between 50 and 60%. And man, I think we're going to pick up an additional two to three points on the bottom line. Well, Gary, why do you think that? Just feel that. Just feel it. Did you do a regression analysis? No. Is that bottoms-up forecast? No, no, not really. Have you talked to the people in manufacturing? Is there some kind of new efficiency? Is there an outside? No, I haven't spoken to them either. What about these new products? I don't know. I haven't spoken to anyone in product development. I just feel it's this way. <laughs> Would you have jazzed out and said, man, i got to buy that stock. That guy is really good. <laughs> Or would you have said, 
I can't believe that somebody in his position would speak like that, giving such specific numbers of where they're headed and what's going on with nothing logically to back it up. No research, nothing to look into, and he wants me to look at his company and his stock? And yet, where was my mind that night when I didn't look at my friend and said, an intelligent business person like yourself, how could you possibly make that up in your head with no logic, no reason, nothing to support it? When it's the most important decision that you're ever going to make in your life. Because when you die, folks, it's too late. If you believe what I'm going to say today, there's not a second chance. And if we look at the events that are happening in the world, there are a lot of people that have passed away abruptly that haven't planned on doing that. Those that went to the World Trade Center on September 11th, those here in this area that just happened to be visiting a store or pumping gas and a sniper decides that he's going to take their life. Now, why do I look at it this way? Well, I, I go back to 1 Peter 3.15. Now, I'm going to reference the Bible today, and you've all been given the gift of a Bible, and I'm very grateful for that. But what I'm going to ask you to do is put on your thinking caps and apply logic and reason to everything I say. We're going to stick around afterwards. We are going to get you out of here on time. But... Ron and I are going to stick around afterwards. Anything that you hear me say, anything that you would say, well, I'm not sure about that, please take the time. Come up and challenge me on it. I want to have the dialogue with you. Why? I'm a mathematician long time before I was a business person. I'm referencing the Bible as a book, not as the Word of God. I do believe it is the Word of God. I do believe it's inerrant, but I'm going to reference it as a book. That's all I'm going to reference it as right now in the context of asking you who are non-believers to accept that. It's a book that's been around 1,600 years, written by 40 authors. There's never been a historical correction found in it. It's published in more languages and distributed in more countries, and there are more copies of it than any other book in the world. So you have to at least give me that, that the Bible's a book, and that I'm allowed to reference it. Now, why do I do it? Because I believe it's the Word of God. And in 1 Peter it says, But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. I underline reason for the hope you have. It's translated to logic. It's okay to be logical as a believer. A lot of people have a misconception that when you become a believer in Christ, you just step out in some faith, throwing caution to the wind. No logic. I believe it in spite of what all these things say. I'm going to step out in faith. But I will tell you that logic is subordinate to faith. Everything you believe, everything you have faith in, is based on logic. If I told you to stand up right now, you'd say, I can stand up. Why? Well, because I've had the experience of standing up thousands of times. Sit down. I can sit down. I've had the experience of sitting down thousands of times. If I ask Carl, what's your name? He'd probably say Carl, wouldn't you guess? Right? Say, why? How do you know that? Well, people call me Carl. 
Yeah, but, but that's not good. Well, how, who, well, who told him? To, well, I told him to call me Carl. But now, you've got to give me a little more bait. Why do you believe your name is Carl? Well, I have a birth certificate. It says Carl on it. How do I know that's not a forgery? Listen, Gary, my mother told me <laughs> my name was Carl. Now, I don't want to go there, right? But is it possible that babies could have been swapped? Is it? Do you think somewhere in the world right now, somebody sitting there whose name is Carl or Susie or Gary or Dan has been living a life for 50 years, unaware that in the 50s, babies were swapped and the wrong parents took them home? Do you think it's possible? I'd say it's probable. Did it happen to Carl? Well, we don't know. <laughs> I'm sure his mother will want to talk to me afterwards. What do I know? But the fact of the matter is, there is supporting evidence that says, you know, I believe my name is Carl, and good supporting evidence for that, and good logic for that. Logic is subordinate to faith. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, I just thank you for this opportunity to be here this morning, and I thank you for everyone here. I pray right now, Lord, that your spirit would come upon this place, that you would convict people, that you would make those in this room really ponder you, the logic behind your existence and who you are. I'm going to pray and ask for this in the name of Jesus Christ, and I'm going to pray that I say the right words, Lord, that I really diminish up here and disappear and that you appear. And I pray that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, it takes faith to believe there's a God. But there takes faith to believe that there's not a God. It takes faith to believe that that God is Jesus Christ. It takes faith to believe that that God is not Jesus Christ. If you will give me your attention for the next few moments, at the very least... I believe you will leave here at the very least, and that's not my desire, that you will leave here saying it takes more faith for me to believe that there's not a God than it takes to believe that there is. And it takes more faith for me to believe that Jesus Christ is not God than it is for me to believe that he is. Now, I can't logic you in or reason you in to a relationship with Christ. But what I can do is ask you to consider the evidence. As we look at logic, one of my favorite ways of looking at logic, obviously, is in the business world. And as I look at business, I believe, and I'm one of these folks, that business is a lot simpler than what we like to pronounce business is. That we tend to make it a little more complicated. Our first chairman of Cisco, uh, as a matter of fact, our first president of Cisco, now he is chairman of the board, it was John Morgridge. And many years ago, when I had first joined Cisco, I sat in an analyst conference. It was a much smaller company then. We were measured in hundreds of millions, but we had still been extremely successful. And John was addressing a group of analysts at a luncheon. And one of the analysts asked him, John, what is Cisco's strategy leading to success? And I loved John's answer. He said, in my life and in my career, and for those of you who don't know John, you have to picture, he is the Jack Benny of the business world. An excellent speaker, and he looked at the answer. He said, I have found in my experience that there are two types of strategies. One 
where you have been enormously successful. You've had revenue growth and profitability, and new products have hit the market at just the right time. And people recognize that success, and so you decide you're going to go backwards and document what you think it is that led to that success and call that your strategy. Second is when you must look forward and decide what's going to happen in the marketplace, how you're going to segment it, where you're going to put your development dollars, how are you going to reach those segments, and what is your value proposition going to be? And then you must document that and call it your strategy. He said, I prefer the former. <laughs> There's a lot of fluff in the business world, aren't, isn't there? A lot of books written on how to be successful. Pick those books off the shelves that were written in the 70s and look at the lists of the names of the companies there that were held up as the paragons of success, the ones that you need to model. Take a look at the successful CEOs and the names from that past that say, these are the habits that this individual has. Some of them have fallen into disgrace. Some that were named CFO of the year for innovative financial practices are now <laughs> facing jail sentences. That's a true statement. They were written up just a few years ago. There is a lot of fluff in this business world. I spent eight years with Wang Laboratories, four wonderful, glorious years where we were growing on a curve like that. People were writing articles that Wang would someday overtake IBM. And then all of a sudden, wham, we get hit with a downturn and a new set of competitors. Deck comes on the scene and we're wondering what happened. Our gravity is upside down. And so what do we do? Because we never understood why we were successful, we take a look at what's the cause effect of this. And we had no relation. We had fluff. And we actually made jokes. You know, when things were good, I got up out of the right side of the bed. And I noticed lately that my wife took over the right side of the bed, and I've been getting up on the left. And I think if I get back to the way it was and get up on the right side of the bed, things are going to return the way they were. As a matter of fact, maybe I should get out of bed several times during the day and we'll really... Thanks. No, no, it's not, we're not making enough sales calls. Back to basics. I want everybody making more sales calls. I had a sales rep at Wang come up to me and say, you know what, Gary? Made a hundred sales calls today. I said, wow. I said, could have made 101, but somebody stopped me and asked me what I was selling. <laughs> Where do we get this logic? Now, I will forewarn you right now, and I shared with some folks at dinner last night. I went to Ohio State. Woody Hayes was still there when I was at Ohio State. Woody Hayes was a character. I have a Woody Hayes style of management. There's ten things that I adhere to, ten principles that I really believe in. Seven of them are right. I don't know which seven, so I keep doing all ten. <laughs> but there are things that at least I believe logically support the business. Employees, people are employees, not prisoners. All the good marketing in the world doesn't make up for lack of product. If you have salespeople measuring their time, 50% of their time, that's 50% of the time less that they're selling. There's some basic common sense principles that you want to apply in the business world, at least that I've found, and that logically support then my belief system. Go back to March 
of 2000. Some of us would like to go back to March of 2000 and stay there for a few days long enough to sell. But if you go back to March of 2000, the height of the internet bubble, think about it. I was part of it. There are Cisco people in here. I hope I didn't embellish it too much, but you know what? The internet was going to change the world. We had found this new set of technology that would increase productivity at such a rate that we could still increase real wages and thereby have sustained economic prosperity with no threat of inflation. The business cycle was dead. The old rules were out. You didn't take, as a matter of fact, I have an article up here right now that I copied from that era that was one of my favorite. Those of you who know, and certainly Ron knows, that how you value a company is on the net present value of future earnings. But you know what? There's an article actually written at that time, and the quote is, all right, this time it's different. See, we knew better, didn't we? We knew you didn't use that silly textbook stuff. Actually, what you do is, you see, you use P.E. ratios of 100 and 1,000. And if they're not making money, then we use P.R. ratios of, let's do 100 and 1,000 again. Let's value that company based on its revenue. As a matter of fact, if they don't have revenue, let's measure eyeballs. <laughs> and if they don't have eyeballs, let's measure intellectual property. You see, a company is really valued on the combined intellectual property that is represented in their employee basis. Microsoft employees are worth $3.5 million. Cisco employees are worth $4 million. Uh, <laughs> you just go around and do it. Did it make sense? Is there any wonder now, as we reflect backwards, that that bubble burst? In 1999, a book was written, and it started to circulate around Cisco. It was called The Internet Bubble. Now, for those of you who haven't read this book and you want a good historical context, remember, this was written in 1999. And, it, and when you read it, you'll say, oh, he just wrote that book. But he talks about if you continue with these valuations, just today, freeze the market, it's going to be 50 years before these companies are worth what you say they're going to be worth, and then they have to have sustained growth of 30, 50, 100 percent for the next 50 years. My goodness, if we continued that, Cisco would be bigger than the United States of America. How can you look at that? What were we thinking? It seems so obvious now. Doonesbury wrote a cartoon, and I get a kick out of it, and I'm not real familiar with the character, so please forgive me for those of you who are, but I assume the daughter's talking to her father. The daughter's a college student. And she says, wow, Poppy, we're sure burning through a ton of money. They're talking about their business. He said, well, we're trying to position ourselves to go public, honey. In the Internet business, profitability is for wimps. It means your business plan wasn't aggressive enough. It's okay to lose a lot of money as long as it's on purpose. <laughs> She looks at him and says, oh, will all this be explained in school? He said, no, it's too new. <laughs> Hindsight's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Alan Greenspan said, irrational exuberance, and we shoved him off the stage. We didn't want to hear it. Logic didn't support it. If I could only go back, if I could only go back, I'd sell that stock in March. If I could only go back, I would change the way I reacted. I'd take a more realistic. I'd read that book that Gary talked about. If I could only go back. 
on a more serious note, if I could only go back before September 11th, I'd increase the defense budget. I'd change airport security. Nobody attacks the United States on their own soil. I can't live by that. Of course they can. If I could only go back, I'd change the way things were. There's a story in the Bible of Lazarus and the rich man. And Lazarus was a beggar and he sat outside of the rich man's gates. And he was covered with sores and the dogs would even come and lick his sores. And the rich man inside this palatial estate that was gated, and we know it was gated, wouldn't even give Lazarus the crumbs, the garbage that he was going to throw away. Didn't even have the compassion to share it with this beggar. Well, you flash forward and they're both in their eternal destinations. And Lazarus is in paradise in heaven. And the rich man is in hell. And the rich man and Lazarus are both Jews. And they're both of the Jewish and Hebrew tradition. And they both know what the Old Testament says. And they both know what the prophets... And the rich man says to Father Abraham, the father of Jews, can he just come over, dip his finger in water and touch my tongue? Because I'm in absolute agony. He says, no, you can't. See, what is is your fate is eternal. It's sealed. There is no going back. Oh, man. Can you send him back? Because I have five brothers. Send him back and warn them. He said, hey, you had the prophets. You're a Hebrew. Where was your head? What were you thinking your entire life? Why did you never examine the most important question that you could ever ask yourself and the most important decision you could ever make? And yet now you want to change things? It's too late. If I can only go back, if I could only go back and change things, I'd do things differently. Let's look at, instead of business logic, let's look at the logic. Is there a God? And I'm going to give you three pieces of evidence that there is a God. And if you don't believe it, and you don't have time to stay after the breakfast today, then what I want you to do is come and get my phone number and call me. If you really say, hey, I really wrestle with that, you've got to share a little more logic, because I know I go through them fast. But think about them. Write them down. First, you all in here know the difference between right and wrong. I have some former Cisco, or their Cisco employees. I'm a former Cisco employee. But Cisco people that are in here, and a lot of times they'd hear me talk about this theory R, and that's what I named a new company, Do What's Right. Because I know you all know the difference between right and wrong. I didn't use the corporate world as an opportunity to proselytize on my faith, but that was some, I tried to live the principles at least there. And you know the difference. Oh, no, 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 Gary. We just heard Ron say, you know, there's absolute rights and wrongs that are wrong for me. And he was saying, no, I don't subscribe to that. Well, I'd ask you, who in here wants to stand up and defend the egregious act of driving an airplane into the World Trade Centers on September 11th? Who wants to tell me that's right? No one. That's all I, well, who wants to, well, maybe it's right for them. Who wants to defend the snipers? How do you know that? How do you know that that's right and wrong? Why does your conscience bother you when you do something wrong? Do you have a list that your mother gave you and said, okay, these are the 57 things we'll cover today and then we're going to cover another 122 tomorrow and I'm going to cover every aspect of your life so that you always know the difference between right and wrong. No, it's planted on your brain. You know the difference between right and wrong. And you have to ask yourself, where did that come from? Second thing I'm going to talk about, and Ron basically talked about it. He said he believes in creation versus evolution, and so do I. 
But I'm going to talk about it from a different aspect because it's okay. You can get into heaven by believing in evolution. And Ron and I are both prepared to be wrong just so we're in the right place. And God say, well, you know, you really messed that up. It was evolution. That's the way it is. That's okay. <laughs> However, I want you to think about something. I lived in Chicago for seven years. My brother still lives there. And for those of you who may have lived there uh, or possibly are from there now, you know that every once in a while, a tornado comes through Chicago. Uh, and tornadoes really tear up everything in their path. If you've ever seen the aftermath of one, I hope you've not been in one, they are violent, violent storms. And they lift everything up and tear it around and move everything together. And subsequent to this, or at the same time, I'm sorry, as this tornado, there was a serious hail and lightning storm. Now, my brother and I are both old car buffs. We love old cars. I love old Corvettes. And my brother and I know of this junkyard or scrapyard in Chicago that has every part for a 1953 through 1962 Corvette. So my brother was naturally curious in the aftermath of this horrendous storm, tornado, hailstorm, lightning. What happened to that junkyard? And so his wife and he drove down to the area. And to his surprise, sitting in front of that junkyard was a beautiful, pristine, assembled 1958 Corvette. Keys in the ignition, still wet from the storm. And he did what any one of you would do in this room. He got in that car and he took it home. <laughs> because, you see, he knew. He knew that this storm, with its whirling winds, pounding hail, electrical lightning, had by chance taken the parts that were in this junkyard and assembled this car. He knew that. The police didn't know that. He tried to explain it to them. They weren't buying the story. They're saying, Bill, somebody designed that car. Somebody assembled it and manufactured it or beautifully refurbished it. That is not your car. And yet, maybe you're sitting and saying, well, okay, it did happen by chance. Life came from non-life by chance. If you took a cell, skipped the cell wall membrane, skipped the cell substance, and just go to the nucleus, and just inside the nucleus, just take DNA, and just take the simplest form, of DNA, which would be 200 molecules connected together, nucleate acids. The simplest strand is 200. And they have to be in order if we label them 1 through 200. You can't have 1 through 198 and have 200 and 199 flipped. Now, if all of those molecules happen to be sitting in this premortal soup, lightning strikes, throws them up in the air, and they assemble. One, two, three, four, five, all the way to 200. What do you think the odds of that are happening? Well, I know what the odds are because I'm an old mathematician. And if I sold three blocks, you have three choices for the first block, two for the second. So it's one out of six times, three blocks. One out of 24 for four blocks. For 200 molecules to be in order, it's one out of 10 to the 364th power. 
That's a one with 364 zeros behind it. A million has six zeros, a billion has nine. Now you're saying, yeah, but Gary, you know, this stuff uh, happened over billions of years. Really? Okay, well, there's 60 seconds in a minute, 60 minutes in an hour, 24 hours in a day, 8 billion years. You know how many seconds there are in 8 billion years? 10 to the 16th. That means if lightning struck every second for 8 billion years, you still have to believe that one out of 10 hundred to the 346 power that that strand of DNA was created. And that's just a simple strand of DNA. Then you have to give me the rest of the nucleus. Then you have to give me the cell substance, which is greater. Then you have to give me the cell membrane. And oh, by the way, did I mention you need an environment for it to exist in? And scientists will tell you, was there oxygen? Wasn't there oxygen? I don't know. If there was, it burned through. If there wasn't, it couldn't sustain life. And then you have to get eyes, ears, nose, throat, different species of animals, plants, this whole world and universe around us. And if you subscribe to that, tell me where you live, put your keys in the ignition, because I know you'll never prosecute my brother. <laughs> Folks, when you see the created, it implies a creator. You know that. You have a conscience. You see creation in the created implies a creator. And my favorite is time itself. Time's infinite going forward. I can subscribe to that. It's not infinite going backwards. How do I know that? Infinity as a concept cannot be transversed. If I could cross infinity, it's not infinity. And if time goes backwards infinity, we can't be here today because not enough time could have passed for us to physically be here, which means time had a beginning. Stephen Hawking believes time had a beginning. I love that man's writings. He's referencing God more in his writings. Most major physicists today, except for three, as I'm told, believe time had a beginning, and those three have nothing to base the fact that time doesn't have a beginning on. If time has a beginning, who started it? Your conscience? The created implies a creator, and who started time? If there is a God, logic would say there is a God. Who is he? Well, I profess that Jesus Christ was a manifestation of God, that he was fully man, fully God. How do I know? How do I even know Jesus existed? Let's look at that. Well, the Bible says. Well, there's lots of things. Well, Gary, you said the Bible's a book. How do I know it has authority? Tacitus in the first century A.D., who's considered the most premier Roman historian, just to mention one, references the life of Jesus Christ, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and records a mysterious superstition that arose, which was the resurrection. In addition to Tacitus, there's multiple other historians. This man walked the planet. And if you say, well, what year is it, 2002, since his birth? I mean, it's staring you in the face. This man walked the planet. You have to give the fact that he existed. And by the way, he claimed to be God. Eleven men, at least, and by different accounts, 500, saw this resurrected 
man walking around. Nobody rises from the dead unless they're God. Eleven men went to their death, never once recanting the story that they had physically seen a resurrected Christ. Chuck Colson, who is absolutely one of my favorite people and one of my favorite authors, wrote a book called Loving God. And in it, and if you followed Watergate, which I did a long time before I had opportunity to meet Chuck, he talks about two dates, and I want you to mark them. March 23, 1974. Judge Sirica releases a letter from one of the burglars, making it public because the burglar had copped a deal. March 23, 1974. April 8, 1974. Dean meets with the Watergate prosecutors to cut his own deal. Within two weeks, Dean, Magruder, Colson, Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Mitchell, the list goes on, all were cutting deals. These were men who were around the most powerful office in the world, who were totally dedicated and devoted to President Nixon, who had just won in a landslide victory and sat there with great power and were fulfilling their aspirations. And they couldn't hold a conspiracy together for two weeks. Why? Was somebody threatening to kill them? Were they threatened to live impoverished lives? A lot of them were threatened with a little bit of a tarnished reputation and some of them jail time, and the jail time that they took was more like a country club. And yet they all walked away from them. Yet you want me to believe that Jesus didn't rise from the dead and 11 men, poor men, not powerful men, would walk this earth proselytizing, offering the gospel, not having anything but the clothes on their back, face beatings, stonings, jail time, and 10 of the 11 die torturous deaths, never one of them recanting the story or the conspiracy that they had seen a resurrected Christ. Pascal, a famous mathematician, say the odds of that are near zero. These men lived. They saw a resurrected Christ. You know there's a God. You could feel the tugging on you right now saying the evidence is around me. I have a conscience. I see the created implies a creator, and time itself dictates that there's a God. And this God is Jesus Christ. He walked the earth. He was a historical figure, and 11 men went to their death claiming to see a resurrected Christ. And he said that he was God. I'm going to close, and as I look at that, and I say, okay, that's the evidence, but we know logic is not going to get you there. It has to take faith. You can look at the logic, and as I started, the logic supports your faith. But I'm going to go to the book of Acts. And Peter, who was one of the ten of eleven who died a torturous death, was crucified upside down. And he went to his death proclaiming the gospel was true. And one of the more famous sermons that he gave is recorded in the Bible. He is talking to people of Jewish heritage, and not too dissimilar, certainly a lot more eloquent than what I'm talking in today's culture. He spoke to them about this Christ in contemporary times, and he started with the base of their knowledge of what they understood about the prophets and scriptures and told them how Jesus had fulfilled it. And logically, they came to the conclusion that said, he's right. There is a God. And it is Jesus. And so 
Le reaching that, and my prayer is that you re if you came in here not reaching that, you reached it today, but you know and I know, it's not a logic thing. It's a heart thing. It's not logic that separates you from knowing Christ. It's sin. I don't want to give up my lifestyle. You don't understand what I've done. What can I do to deserve it? All these questions that surface. And so what they asked him, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, saying, this is true. There is an eternity, and I want to spend it in paradise. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what shall we do? Tell us what to do. Ron started with it. If there's a God, and it's Jesus, what does he expect of you? And don't leave this room without understanding that. Don't 100 years from now be stuck like the rich man saying, I wish I had heard that. I wish I had spent more time. I wish I hadn't rushed off to that meeting. I wish I had gotten my questions answered to make the most important decision that I could make. And Peter said to them, repent and let each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And what he meant by baptism there, I believe, is not a water baptism, but an accepting that, you see, this is a spirit. This is God. Let him come into your heart. But he says, repent. You've got to turn away from what you're doing that's wrong. Recognize what you're doing is wrong and recognize that the only way you can be cleaned. It's not a balanced life, like my friend said. This is, oh, on the average, you were good. Come on in. There's no scales. Because if you were played on a scale, every single one of us is going to be found wanting and we're not getting in. But if you say, hey, Christ came down in the humblest of forms, and died on a cross to pay for these sins. That's the way he chose to do it, folks. It's not a fairy tale. It's reality. He's God. He chose to do it that way. And I'm thankful he did and that he revealed it to me. And if I turn from my sins and I ask for that forgiveness, that's all there is to it. I'm going to pray now, and perhaps you do feel convicted to do that. And I'm going to ask the Christians at the table... They invited you here for a reason. They jeopardized relationships with you to talk about this uncomfortable thing. Just about every one of the table hosts in here has either seen a video or heard me speak on this before, and so they knew I'd be in your face with it. But they cared enough about you and your eternal destiny to say, you know what, if you get mad at me, I'll risk it. But you need to hear this. So I'm going to ask those table hosts to pray specifically for the people that they brought here for conviction and tugging and pulling. And maybe some of you are feeling uncomfortable right now. Good. Make that decision. And for those of you who are saying, I've got to make that decision. I want to live in paradise. And I know what I've done in this life is not right. I know I don't have a clean slate. I want to turn from it, repent of it, and accept Christ. And you pray the prayer that I'll pray. And you will. And that's it. Just bow your heads with me. Father, we thank you again once more for this gathering. I thank you so very, very much for the people here. I thank you for the preparation done, for all the work that's gone into this. But I thank you for bringing the people here that you've brought here. I truly believe, Lord, this is a divine appointment. And I pray right now for those who have felt that tug this morning to say, God, there is a God, and it is you. I pray right now if they would pray quietly to you at their table this prayer. Father in heaven, I'm sorry for every sin that I've committed. I want to turn from that, and I can only do that with your help.
I repent of those sins. I ask for Jesus to come into my heart. I accept that he is who he said he was, that he is God. I accept that he died on a cross for my sins and rose again, proving he was God. I ask Jesus into my heart right now, and I thank you, Lord, for that salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this edition of Faith at Work. We hope you enjoyed it. I'm Carl Grant. Please follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Faith at Work Radio. And for more information on the High Tech Prayer Breakfast, please visit www.hightechprayerbreakfast.org. You have been listening to Faith at Work with Carl Grant. 